there, Nate and Callie here. Hello. We hope you're enjoying Curiosity Daily so far. We want to recommend a new podcast from Discovery that we think you'll like. And um, be warned, it's likely to make your skin crawl in a good way. Monsters Inside Me releases weekly episodes and shares crazy, true stories about parasite attacks. These tiny creatures can be really deadly. On each episode, you'll hear from victims of these tiny creatures, along with the doctors, friends, and family who were close to these cases. So, without further ado, here's an episode of Monsters Inside Me. And if you like it, subscribe to the Monsters Inside Me podcast feed for new episodes every week. Deadly organisms lurk all around us. When one attacks an 11-month-old boy, it could be disastrous. We were absolutely devastated. It was the worst day we had ever had. A Vietnam vet survives the ground war, but can he beat a hidden enemy that's been living inside him for years? The pain was outrageous. I wanted to scream. And a father has no idea a killer is lodged in his brain. They're like, you know, we need to do brain surgery. That's great, just make this stop. Three very different parasites, three sleeper cells lying dormant until they're ready to attack. Worms invisible to the human eye. Insects thirsty for blood. Microscopic amoeba. They might look harmless, but these are some of nature's deadliest creatures. They can hijack our bodies, disable our immune systems. They are parasites. But to those infected, they are the monsters inside me. Parasites are the most successful organisms on the planet. They live in or on other living creatures called hosts. In a parasitic relationship, there have to be two parties. There's a host that loses, and there's a parasite that wins. There are countless organisms that make a living off of us. We can't always see them because they're like sleeper cells, perfectly adapted to live undercover, feeding, growing, and breeding. Ticking biological time bombs, they lie dormant until it's time to strike. For a lot of parasites, an important part of the life history or the life cycle is to hide and wait. There is always some kind of an environmental cue that is going to tell it that now is the time to act, that is gonna cause it to spring into action, and that is called a trigger. They attack when it's least expected, as one family is about to discover. May, 2002. Tony and Valerie Richardson are a young couple living with their two sons, four-year-old Zachary and 11-month-old Garrett. On the surface, their life seems idyllic. We felt very lucky to have two great kids. One of our favorite things to do is to go out and play on the play equipment. Garrett likes to slide down slides, and he likes playing in the grass. But their family is about to be torn apart. Garrett's unusually sleepy, and um, he's, he's taking extremely long naps. And we were worried because he'd never slept that long before. Didn't really seem like he was sick, other than he was especially sleepy. The next day, Garrett is worse. In fact, he hardly wakes up at all. The Richardsons immediately take him to their doctor. 
We see two pediatricians. They're both a little perplexed and worried. So they send us to the hospital to have further tests done. Garrett is obviously sick, but it's not clear what's wrong with him. He had a multitude of tests, a spinal tap, uh, urine analysis, lots of blood work. The test results show that Garrett's white blood cell count is unusually high. This indicates that his body is under attack. When the doctor tells us about his high white blood cell count, they said that there was no disease that they, that they knew of that was associated with the pattern of symptoms that he was showing. The following morning, two days after being admitted, Garrett's condition nosedives. We go to the playroom um, to play with toys. Garrett's crawling around and suddenly he falls over. He just tips over to his right and, and hits the floor. It wasn't until the next day when he was consistently falling over that I realized that this is part of something larger. But Garrett's loss of balance is only the beginning. I put together the fact that he's no longer reaching for crackers and um, is having a hard time finding his toys. I called Tony in a panic. And she just said, he can't see anymore. And uh, I thought about it and I said, you're right. Unable to sit or stand, with his eyesight failing, Garrett Richardson's condition remains a mystery. But the Richardsons are determined to save their baby. And leading parasitologist at the University of Indiana, Dr. Kevin Kazakos, thinks he might have the answer. I specialize in animal parasites that infect people. Kazakos has just received a sample of Garrett's blood. He adds an enzyme to the blood serum. If the serum changes color, it will indicate that Garrett is being attacked by a deadly parasite. But the Richardsons will not receive the results for a few more agonizing days. As a precaution, Garrett is given a course of antiparasitic drugs. But it may be too late. When we see a child affected with clinical signs, there's been significant damage already. Kazakos shares his suspicions with Garrett's doctors, and they order another battery of tests. One stands out, the MRI of Garrett's brain. The scan shows that his brain has shrunken and that he's sustained severe brain damage. We were absolutely devastated. It was, it was the worst day we had ever had. When the results of Garrett's blood test finally come back, they reveal that the toddler is harboring a parasitic roundworm called Bayless Ascaris. His condition is so rare that only 14 cases have ever been reported in the United States. There are no known full recoveries, and at the very least, Garrett risks serious brain damage. And I have him here in the bottle. It's a very deadly parasite. The larval forms will infect a wide variety of, uh, of animals. It's killed over 120 species of birds and mammals, including humans. Roundworm eggs can live outside of a host for years. They lie dormant in the soil, invisible, waiting for a host to come along. And in this case, roundworm eggs made it into Garrett's stomach. There, the acid in his stomach activated the eggs, and they hatched. 
larvae two millimeters long emerged and burrowed through the intestinal wall into the blood. They traveled through Garrett's body, bursting out of blood vessels and attacking internal organs. Only on rare occasions do they make their way to the brain, where the larvae break through the brain's defenses and eat the brain from the inside. Unfortunately, this is what happened to Garrett. The larvae then began to digest his visual cortex, the part of the brain controlling sight, which is what caused him to go blind. At the hospital, the doctors break the news to the Richardsons. I remember it vividly. Um, it was Garrett's first birthday. And so uh, people had come to the hospital with gifts and toys and balloons. And the doctors come in and, and tell us that the tests are confirmed, that Garrett does have the parasite. And uh, we were crushed. Garrett's life hangs by a thread as the parasitic roundworm threatens to claim another victim. I can't remember the doctors actually ever saying anything positive about how things were going to turn out. One-year-old Garrett Richardson is fighting for his life. His brain is being eaten by a deadly parasitic roundworm called Bayless Ascaris. He's getting worse and worse. He's losing ability after ability. The roundworm larvae have eaten so much of his brain that Garrett is unable to sit up, crawl, or see. My worry was that he was going to die. Garrett is given a powerful antiparasitic drug called albendazole that impairs the worm's intestines and starves them to death. But the chances of success are slim. This parasite is so deadly that there really wasn't much hope. For more than 20 years, scientists have studied how this parasite spreads. In a forest in Indiana, Professor Gene Rhodes is going to try and catch the wild animal that carries Bayless Ascaris. Finding the animal could shed light on how outbreaks occur. There are a number of animals that could be infected, but the number one suspect is the raccoon. Like any wild animal, raccoons must be handled with caution. Well, the first thing we need to do with a, a trapped raccoon is to knock it out. Gene uses telazole, which will gently anesthetize the raccoon while avoiding undue stress on the animal. If the raccoon is carrying the adult roundworms inside its intestine, there will be eggs in its feces. I'm going to turn the animal over, and I'm going to slowly insert my finger into its rectum to get fecal material on my glove. And I'm going to smear it into the test tube. This procedure might look unpleasant, but the raccoon is not harmed. Rhodes sends the fecal samples to his colleagues in Chicago. Dr. Kristen Page analyzes up to 600 raccoon samples a week. There are some eggs. That confirms that this animal was positive. Dr. Page's work on the life cycle of the parasite holds the secret to how Garrett became infected. The adult worm lays its eggs in the raccoon's gut. The eggs are passed out in the raccoon's feces. The eggs are eaten by a second or intermediate host and hatch into larvae in the intermediate host's stomach. 
the larvae migrate through the intermediate host's body, attack its central nervous system, and kill it. The intermediate host is then eaten by the raccoon, and the life cycle is repeated. The raccoon is immune to the parasite. It never feels a thing. Tests show that 80% of raccoons in North America are infested with this parasite, yet fatal infection in humans is rare. For this parasite to affect humans, they have to be ingested in very large quantities, and once they're inside a human, they have to migrate and happen to end up at the brain. So how did Garrett Richardson get infected? The average raccoon sheds about 26,000 eggs per gram of feces, okay? A gram of feces is about the size of your little fingernail. A gram is not very much. Can a child get into a raccoon latrine and eat a gram of feces? What happens if they eat 10 times that amount and it has that many eggs? Uh, they're gonna take in a huge number of eggs. Our doctors told us that it's likely that he picked up something off the grass when he's crawling and put it in his mouth that had the parasite on it. At the hospital, the Richardsons are determined to do everything they can to save their son. Miraculously, the drug treatment seems to be working. And after eight days in the hospital, Garrett is sent home to be cared for by his parents. We realized that we were his best hope, helping him recover whatever it would take. Garrett's life is still in jeopardy. One side effect of the treatment is massive inflammation caused by the parasites dying off and releasing toxins in his body. To combat the inflammation, Garrett is prescribed steroids. The steroid made him feel horribly uncomfortable. He was crying all day long, every day, until he slept. He'd sleep at night, and then when he woke up, he'd start to cry again. After three weeks of treatment, the parasites are dead. Garrett's life is changed forever. But three years later, he has recovered far more than his doctors predicted. It took him two years to be able to learn to crawl again, and then he was able to walk at four. He never gives up. We're extremely proud of him. In addition to his other milestones, Garrett has even regained some of his lost sight. He can see toys and he can see faces and recognize people. While the Richardsons must cope with the effects of the raccoon roundworm, they are grateful to still have their son. He's a very joyful boy and that that makes us happy. We miss the child he would have been, but love the child that he is. Although the consequences of roundworm infection can be severe, cases like Garrett's are extremely rare. Deadly human parasites like the raccoon roundworm are very, very uncommon. In the history of the USA, there have been fewer than 20 reported cases of Bayless Ascaris. And there are steps people can take to avoid infection. Keep an eye on small children playing outdoors especially near wooded areas where raccoons live. One of the things that makes these tiny sleeper cells so dangerous is that you never know when they will strike. The raccoon roundworm's eggs hide in the soil for years, but once they're in a host, they attack with ferocious speed. Other parasites use a different strategy. They invade quickly, but lay undetected for years. September 1967, Tampa, Florida. Sergeant Tim Carmack has just completed a tour of duty in Vietnam. 
he returns home. But just four days later, at MacDill Air Force Base, a life-threatening fever takes hold. It was like I was melting on the bed, and I went into a coma. It got so bad that they told my mother and my stepfather that they were making arrangements for my funeral because I would not come out of this. Doctors diagnose him with malaria, but the fever breaks after five days and Tim emerges from his coma. He makes a full recovery, except for one lingering issue, recurring asthma-like symptoms. I couldn't hardly breathe out of my nose, out of my mouth. Tim learns to live with the symptoms and gets on with his life. 36 years later, in 2003, Tim has a booming business painting houses and Mary's former nurse, Shannon Potter. They start a family, and Tim is working more than ever. He worked seven days a week, had to drag him home on Sundays. His family believes all the years of working as a painter are taking their toll. My legs were swelled up, but they had been doing that, you know, off and on for a few months. I thought, you know, he just needed to cut back on being on his feet for so long. Tim tries to delegate his work and keeps off his feet as much as he can, but it doesn't help. And one morning, he wakes up to a terrifying sight. I seen a liquid coming out of a spot on my leg. The liquid was thick, goldish, heavier than like baby oil. I got him a paper towel, and we noticed that it came back. And there wasn't really a cut there or anything for it to come through. It was just coming out of the pores. Tim's leaking legs are truly disturbing. But could this be the start of something far more sinister? What really scared me the most was none of us knew where the liquid was coming from, what was causing it. I was just thinking, something's got to be done. There's something definitely wrong. The best way to avoid getting a tapeworm is to do which of the following? A, never drink from a well. B, thoroughly cook meat before eating. C, always wear shoes when walking outside. The best way to avoid getting a tapeworm is B, thoroughly cook meat before eating. Sixty-two-year-old Tim Carmack has just woken up to find his legs oozing out a thick yellow liquid. Unsure of what's happening and determined to find the answer to save her husband, his wife Shannon hits the internet. There's heart conditions that can cause you to have problems with swelling, and there's also diabetes, which, you know, ran through my mind, you know, maybe he's diabetic, he needs to be tested. As a veteran of the Vietnam War, Tim makes an appointment at a nearby VA clinic. When they arrive, the doctor gives him a complete physical examination. I told her my legs was weeping this fluid out. She looked down and looked at me and says, there's nothing we can do for that. I was just thinking, you know, there's something definitely wrong. And I was really surprised when they came out and said, there's nothing wrong with him. Take him home. But Shannon refuses to give up. She is determined to get her husband the help he needs. Over the next year, they see three more doctors. But each visit brings them no closer to a diagnosis. 
Tim is prescribed painkillers for his legs, but they give little relief. I got very weak. There was times when I was on the job, I would literally have to just sit down and wait for my body to catch up to me. His condition continues to decline. Soon, it's sheer agony even to walk. It hurt. God, it hurt so bad. I mean, it, it, it was hard to explain the pain. After a year of chronic pain and swelling, Tim and Shannon make an appointment at a major hospital in Tampa. Tim sees a team of experts and gets a thorough workup. Everything just kept coming back negative. His heart was fine. He wasn't diabetic. I felt very disappointed. All they wanted to do was throw pills at me, but no one ever addressed what was wrong with me. Then, after two years, an even more bizarre and frightening symptom appears. Well, the next thing I noticed was uh, getting severe swelling around my scrotum area. I really didn't know what was happening with me. It gave us a direction when his testicles started swelling that urologist was our best bet. When we first seen him, he, he kind of acted like the rest of the doctors did. Well, there's not that much wrong with you, you know, and he started the same story. But I finally told him, I said, look, there's got to be something wrong with me somewhere. Refusing to take no for an answer, Tim gives the urologist his complete medical history, going back 40 years. I told him four days after coming back to the United States, I wound up with what they call full-blown malaria. He says, you had malaria? I said, yes, sir. Malaria is a deadly disease caused by the parasite Plasmodium. It is transmitted by a mosquito. And in the jungles of Vietnam, where Tim was fighting, mosquitoes were everywhere. Could a battle with malaria 40 years earlier be the source of Tim's symptoms today? Tim's doctor digs deeper. He said, what do you mean malaria? I said, that's what they told me it was. I had severe breathing problems. I went into a coma for almost five days and he stopped me and he says, Mr. Carmack, I'm 90% sure of what you've got. The urologist suspects Tim contracted not one, but two different parasites in Vietnam. The first, the parasite that causes malaria, was successfully treated. The other went undetected. I said, what do you mean a parasite? How bad are you saying this is? I was devastated. I didn't know how long I had to live. Tim Carmack's four-year struggle to identify what's been making him ill has finally come to an end. But the news is not good. His urologist believes a parasite has been lurking inside his body for the past 40 years. Oh, God, I was devastated. I wanted to know if it could be stopped. There's only one way to tell. 
the urologist ordered me uh, to a primary care doctor and ordered the test for the parasite. Three days later, the results are back. I went in and he confirmed that I did have the parasite. The parasite is a thread-like worm called W. bancrofti, and the disease it causes is lymphatic filariasis. Although virtually unknown in North America, it is widespread in Southeast Asia, where Tim was stationed as a soldier in the Vietnam War. I wanted to know how far this parasite was in my system. What does it do and what does it cause? Dr. Robert Hartzell is Tim's primary care physician. Filariasis has an insidious onset. It can affect the lungs. It just causes massive swelling. And um, the worst case scenario, you know, I'm sure everybody's heard of elephantiasis. Elephantiasis is an extreme thickening of the skin and underlying tissue. That's probably the worst case scenario. But how did Tim's doctors overlook the disease 40 years earlier? The key lies in the parasite's ability to hide. Its life cycle begins inside a mosquito. When the mosquito bites a human, hundreds of tiny larvae swarm into the bloodstream. Next, they travel to the lymphatic system, a crucial network in the human body. The lymphatic system is a series of tubes that drain fluid out of your tissues. So if you ever have swelling in your fingers or in your hands, the way that that fluid gets back out into the bloodstream is by the lymphatic system. Undetected in the lymphatic system, they grow into adult worms three to four inches long. The adult worms mate and produce even more larvae. These microscopic larvae leave the safety of the lymph vessels and nodes to invade other parts of the body. During the day, they lie low in the lungs, causing respiratory symptoms. It explained where my breathing problems were coming from. I knew that this was not the way my body acted. But at night, the drop in our body temperature triggers the larvae to move out of the lungs to their next destination. For the life cycle to be completed, the larvae have to be picked up by a mosquito. So what the parasite does is move close to the lungs during the day and then migrate out towards the skin at night where they'll get picked up by a mosquito. And that daily migration is timed by the natural sleep rhythms of the host. The unsuspecting mosquito transports the larvae to a new host and the life cycle repeats itself. Tim's most severe symptoms began after tangled bits of dead worms plugged up his lymphatic system. Lymph fluid built up in his legs and testicles and leaked out of his pores. Filariasis is treatable with antiparasitic medication if it's caught early. But for Tim, the diagnosis comes too late. His filariasis has caused damage to his lymph system and, and he's going to have that for the rest of his life. Though Tim's life will never be the same, he's learned to manage his affliction through daily exercise and massage. Tim's days are spent with his legs up. We normally do an hour of massage in the morning, and we get him up to try to do a little bit of walking, to do a little bit of exercise, and it's a, you know, figure it out as long as you go process. This, this is a real eye-opener. 
I didn't know that something so little could be so devastating. The Carmacks have discovered just how much harm a tiny creature can cause, especially if it's able to hide in the body without giving any major warning signs. This is the exact strategy of the filariasis parasite. The reason that so many parasites can be undetected for so long is that that's what they've evolved to do, to hide and do their job very quietly without setting off any alarms in the body. This hide-and-wait strategy is devastatingly successful. Filariasis affects 120 million people worldwide, mostly in the tropics. If you're traveling to a region where filariasis is common, a little bit of prevention can go a long way. Use insect repellent and mosquito netting at night. Like tiny undercover agents, parasites are everywhere. In the food we eat, the water we drink, even on the ground we walk on. Lying dormant, waiting to strike. 2003, 34-year-old John Figge and his wife Lisa are settling their two sons into a new neighborhood in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We spend most of our weekends uh, shuttling our kids around to basketball games and soccer games, that type of thing. But their normal routine is interrupted when John begins to experience bouts of dizziness. I noticed it first probably just driving to work. I really couldn't focus on the road. Kind of like my head was out of whack there for a second, and then it was fine. And I thought, hmm, I don't know what that was, but I'm sure it will go away. But the dizziness doesn't go away. In fact, after a few days, it gets worse. I really had trouble keeping my balance. I likened it to being uh, seasick on land. I had to hold on to things a lot uh, to steady myself. Together, the dizziness and loss of balance create a new symptom, constant nausea. However, John and his wife write it off as a simple stomach bug. When your husband complains to you about not feeling well, you think, well, you know, he's probably getting a little bit sick. And, uh, and I really didn't think much of it at all. John takes over-the-counter drugs to cope with the symptoms. But after a few days, it's clear that this is no simple flu. His nausea becomes severely debilitating. He basically said he couldn't stand up. The nausea was so bad. So I decided that it really seemed like he needed to see a doctor. The couple head to their local emergency room to see if they can get a quick diagnosis. The doctor on call examines John and concludes that his symptoms are most likely caused by an inner ear infection. I thought, hey, that's great. At least we know what it is. We have something to go with. It goes away over time. You know, you're probably just going to have to hang out in bed for a few days, and, and it will correct itself. But after several days of bed rest, John doesn't improve. In fact, the symptoms worsen. It got to the point where even sitting down, it, it wasn't really helping anymore. It, it was uh, getting worse and worse. It was really bad. After a week of unrelenting dizziness and nausea, the Figgies realize that something needs to be done fast. This time, they head to a bigger hospital in search of answers and are referred to the neurology department. When John presented to our hospital, first thing I noticed is that he just looked sick. He was retching, he looked very uncomfortable. Dr. Daniel Kremens is a neurologist at the University of Pennsylvania. As the attending physician on call, he is assigned John's case. 
loss of balance, and dizziness can often indicate neurological problems. So he begins testing John's neurological functions. So when we had John do tasks like touching his nose and then touching my finger, he had a lot of trouble doing that. His hand would shake when he did it, and it was uncoordinated. All the signs point to a problem with John's cerebellum. Located at the back of the brain, the cerebellum is the part of the brain that regulates muscle control, coordination, and balance. To find out what could be affecting John's cerebellum, Dr. Kremens orders a CAT scan of John's brain. John's CAT scan showed that he had a large mass in the back part of the brain, about the size of a, a large walnut. I was really very, very worried. I thought I was going to have to be telling his wife that her husband had a brain tumor. Thirty-four-year-old John Figgy and his wife Lisa are about to receive very bad news. John's doctors believe he has a brain tumor. I don't think anyone could tell you that your husband has a brain tumor, and you don't. You know, you get really scared. To confirm the diagnosis, Dr. Kremens orders a biopsy of the mysterious mass. This means cutting open John's skull and taking tissue directly from his brain. They're like, you know, we need to do brain surgery. And I was like, that's great. Sign me up. Just make this stop. The next day, John's surgical team makes an incision into his skull and extracts a sample of the strange mass proliferating in his brain. Downstairs at the pathology lab, technicians examine the sample under a microscope and make an absolutely astounding discovery. I get a page and I call the OR and I say, what kind of tumor is it? And he says, it's not a tumor, it's ova and parasites. I was shocked. That meant that he had eggs and worms in his brain. In recovery, John is stunned by the news that a colony of parasitic worms has invaded his brain. When I heard that it was a parasite, not a tumor, it was a little shocking. I had to keep asking them because I didn't really understand how I had these things in my head. Neither did Dr. Kremens. I had never seen a parasitic infection in the brain that presented like this, looking like a tumor. Dr. Kremens must figure out what kind of parasite is eating John's brain so he can kill it before it's too late. The lab could take hours or even days to identify it, but time is running out. John is at immediate risk of seizures, spinal cord inflammation, even death. Without a second to lose, Dr. Kremens interviews Lisa again. We were trying to figure out how did John get this? Had he traveled somewhere unusual? We traveled pretty locally around the United States, but certainly nowhere exotic. Next, Dr. Kremens considers food as a possible source of the infection. There's an infection called listeria, which people can get sometimes from eating uh, cheeses. And we knew that uh, John and Lisa used to like to eat out. So we were thinking maybe this was some sort of unusual listeria infection. We had been to some tasting menus where you don't always know what you're eating. And, you know, we were scratching our heads trying to figure out if we'd eaten something strange, but we really didn't, didn't remember anything specific. We knew this wasn't any sort of parasite that we'd seen in the United States, and it didn't look like any parasite that I had ever seen associated with some foodborne illness. So at that point, I realized I just had to ask them more questions. Dr. Kremens returns to the topic of travel. Had they done any exotic traveling in the past five years or even further back? 
Lisa's answer could help Dr. Kremens identify John's parasite. Wow, we did, we did go to Africa a number of years ago. Six years ago, to be exact. Lisa can't imagine that a trip taken years earlier could be the source of the infection. But to Dr. Kremens, it's the answer he's been looking for. Well, as soon as I heard that they had gone to Africa, I was pretty confident that that was the source of the infection. In 1998, John and Lisa joined their extended family on a trip to Kenya in East Africa. The family booked a week-long stay at a vacation resort on the banks of Lake Victoria, a 300-mile-long freshwater lake located in the heart of Kenya. Then he wanted to know, had we been swimming in any, any water? And we, in fact, had. They had boats and, and a little beach, and everyone just hung out on the beach, going swimming, going boating. We were never aware that there was anything we should be concerned about in the water. But the water was exactly where John picked up his deadly travel companions. And it's the clue Dr. Kremens needs to identify John's parasite. We took pictures of it and sent it down to the Center for Disease Surveillance in Atlanta, Georgia. And after a few hours, one of our uh, pathologists found uh, a picture and we looked at that. We looked at John's uh, slide and we knew that we had made the diagnosis. John Figgy's doctors have identified the parasite that is growing inside his brain and threatening to kill him. In John's brain, he had something called schistosomiasis, and it's specifically something called schistosomiasis manzoni. Schistosomes live in freshwater lakes in Asia, South America, and Africa. Their eggs are released into the environment by the feces of infected people. Schistosome eggs hatch once they come into contact with fresh water. At that point, they will seek out a snail and penetrate the snail's foot. Inside the snail, they transform into tiny worm larvae. These larvae emerge daily from the snail host. Humans entering the water trigger the movement of larvae toward the surface. Attracted to the fatty acids emitted by human skin, larvae swim toward their new host using microscopic tails. The minute larvae penetrate our skin in three short stages. First, they attach to the skin. Then the larvae search the skin for a penetration site, often at a hair follicle. After finding a penetration site, the larvae then emit a chemical which dissolves human skin, producing a tiny hole they can swim through. In the human body, the larvae transform into adult worms and migrate to the blood vessels near the liver. But how did these parasites get into John's brain? The answer lies in John's blood. What happens is the adult worms mature inside the liver, and then they go out of the liver to mate, and then they lay eggs uh, inside these blood vessels around the intestines. And what normally happens is that uh, these eggs go into the intestines and they're excreted in feces. What happened in John's case Two worms made it and swam uh, against the tide into John's brain and laid this large group of eggs uh, that grew in his brain. A schistosome can sit undetected in the human body for 20 years. And because it can last such a long time, it produces millions of eggs over the course of its lifetime. 
With a diagnosis in hand, Dr. Kremens immediately gets to work saving John's life. When you treat a parasitic infection, what happens is the parasites die, but when they die, they release toxins into the brain, which can cause swelling, and that in and of itself is very dangerous. Until doctors relieve the pressure on his brain, John could still have a life-threatening seizure or go into a coma. The doctors couldn't predict, you know, how much his recovery was going to progress. Would he ever be back to normal? They really never knew. We actually had to put a tube into John's brain to help relieve the pressure that he was experiencing. Two weeks after surgery, John is discharged from the hospital. He's still weak, but he knows that the worst is behind him. When we looked at John's sample under uh, the microscope, he had more eggs and parasites than, than we could count. So if John didn't have brain surgery, he probably would have died. In my wildest dreams, I would never predict that a parasite could cause all these, all these things to happen. It was kind of a one-in-a-billion type of thing. But when you put it all together, you think, well, I, I'm glad we caught it when we did, and, and I'm glad I, I'm fine now. For John Figgy, the parasite living inside him didn't cause a devastating illness for a full six years. Only after it made a wrong turn in John's body and ended up in his brain were doctors able to discover it. Like so many other parasites, living under the radar in the host's body is the key to the schistosome's success. There are a lot of different kinds of parasites in the world, and there are a lot of different strategies that parasites use to complete their life cycles. Some of them use a boom or bust strategy where they produce millions and millions of eggs over a short period of time. Others produce small numbers of eggs, but spread it out over a longer span of time. What these have in common is that they hide without detection at some point in their life cycle. Whether they lurk for years or strike immediately, these sleeper cells lie waiting for their next victim. It's not a question of how or why, but when. We hope you liked this episode of Monsters Inside Me. You can subscribe to Monsters Inside Me on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for other great podcasts from Discovery. There's more to come.